Hello all and the warmest welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the premier North Wales spare room based one person and his mostly silent cat true crime show that seeks out true crime cases of the obscure, the unfamiliar and the often long forgotten to, to bring to you that I've scoured the length of the UK and Ireland to do so. Bringing you these each time is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. You guys listening are the ones that make it all happen. It's fabulous as it always is having you all joining me here today. And as the episode finds you, then I hope that it finds you and your nearest and dearest all good, all safe and all well. So thanks kindly all first for your very encouraging feedback concerning the previous episode of the show, Fury and Fire, the horrific case of Richard Fielding and his twisted, very misperceived vengeance that was fuelled by his own severe mental illness and paranoia. It was a horrendous tale to have covered and one that wasn't as forgotten as I perhaps thought it was. Because following the episode on the show's Facebook group, I did see several comments from people who live in the Chingford area who remembered the tragedy well, including someone who knew the family concerned. I was as respectful as I could possibly be with that tale, because it did horrify me, and mental illness or not, I just couldn't believe the indifference of Fielding in the aftermath of what he'd done, a man totally unfazed with the magnitude of wiping out four generations of a family. An extremely dangerous killer that totally should never walk the streets again, because he purely isn't safe to be, let alone would ever deserve to. Thanks also to both my new and returning Patreon supporters of the show, with shoutouts this time around to Joe Martin, Teresa Summers, Jamie Sherry, Kerry Clapham, Jackie Green, Jennifer Riff and Richard Leonhart, plus Jennifer Barbie, Jenny Geddes, Tracy Campbell, Sarah Johnson and Mary King, who have each opted to annually support the show. What can I say but thank you so much all, it's so kind of you to support the show, it means the absolute world that you do. Now if you want to join these kind folks and get yourself perhaps some show swag and certainly get to hear unreleased bonus tales from the enthusiast, such as The Murder of Janie Shepherd, Operation Magnesium, Horrors Over the Holidays or To Kill and Kill Again, to name just a few, then to do so is so simple that Kim Kardashian would marry it if you just head on over to the Patreon site and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast there. Always remember that podcast suffix folks or you'll struggle to find it. Or you can just use the ever-present clickable link that I put in the episode show notes each time, along with the follow and contact details for the enthusiast. Now it's cheaper than a nest full of birds to do so, and as I say, there is a full series, some 25 unreleased bonus episodes available for supporters, and you could even be awaiting some stuff coming through the post from me to you, that's up to you guys. Now we'll begin our tale this time around following a short word from the episode sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends, which the fun never stops with. Do you, like me, like to play on your phone a mix of colourful, vibrant games and puzzle strategy ones that have you thinking moves ahead? Then if you're totally over the same old puzzle games, you'll find Best Fiends is the game for you, because it's so much more than your average mobile puzzle game. Whenever I have a bit of downtime, I'm constantly levelling up in it, and I've become a bit hooked on it, because I'm hundreds of levels up now. The makers of Best Fiends have created a colourful world called Minutia, in which you use a variety of colourful and unique little characters that you'll meet and collect, such as Wilbur or Moose or Buggles, and use them to destroy slugs, blow up crates, blow up beach balls, collect diamonds, fire off rockets. The list goes on. Each time I play, I seem to find something new that the makers have come up with, 
a different character or a fresh theme or challenge, but always plenty to keep me entertained. It feels fresh and slick whenever I play it, and aside from that, I like that it's a puzzle strategy game that makes you think about your moves, but is fun and casual enough also so that you don't get wound up by it. For the current times of social distancing we're going through, Best Fiends is also great for staying in touch with friends or loved ones you can't see, as you can stay connected to them by playing alongside them, sharing your progress on the leaderboard, or why not just relax and enjoy playing this awesome mobile puzzle game by yourself, because you don't even need to be online to enjoy playing Best Fiends. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. This time around then on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, we head back to a feature that I started back in the second series of the show that I like to do at least once a series, and that's to cover some unsolved cases. I actually think I started doing it back in the first series of the show now, come to mention it. But whenever I started it anyway, I have in each past series covered a cluster of unsolved crimes from a different area of the UK. So far through the back catalogue of the show we've looked at cases from the West Midlands, Avon and Somerset, Gloucestershire, Lincolnshire, Merseyside and North Wales. And the location I've chosen this time around is Greater Manchester. As we always do when we look at unsolved cases here on the show, how it runs is that I'll recount what's known about the crime as much as can possibly be researched and then I get the Holmes hat on and I really do have one by the way and it might even make an appearance at CrimeCon so that's another good reason to grab yourself tickets. And I offer my own theory and insight about the case. Now I'm not saying this is definitively what happened but nor do I intentionally come up with random bollocks either like oh well it's definitely aliens isn't it? That type of thing you know. I've selected a couple of cases that there's relatively little to research concerning each, but that's what I like to do on the show, make those unfamiliar names that bit more, so that those concerned aren't forgotten. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in folks. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for an episode entitled Greater Manchester unsolved. So we start by heading off to the large town of Hyde in the Tameside borough of Greater Manchester. Notable people to have connections with the town include noted artist L.S. Lowry, who's famous for his paintings of industrial landscapes populated with what have come to be known as matchstick men, and who, pop trivia quiz, apparently holds the record for rejecting British honours at five including rejecting a knighthood. Somebody who really didn't want to go and see Liz, that isn't it. Hyde is also where former boxer Ricky Hatton grew up. Children's TV legend Timmy Mallet went to school at Hyde Grammar School, presumably without his bloody mallet and his whack plasters. And in keeping with the running true crime theme that seems to have developed over the previous few episodes, the town has no less than three connections with the familiar annals of British criminal history. Disgraced sex offender and former It's a Knockout television presenter Stuart Hall was brought up there. It's here where Hindley and Brady were arrested for murder in a house on the Hattersley estate, and from 1977, a resident GP in Hyde was one Dr Harold Shipman. And none of those shy-talks really need any further introduction, do they? Well apart from Stuart Hall if you don't live in the UK. But in a 10-word nutshell, 
Grinning Fool, former television presenter and unmasked, established Savile-esque paedophile. Way back in February 1979, two years after Shipman had begun working as a GP there, you can't say killing because you, don't, you just don't know exactly when he did start doing that, do you? But way back in February 1979, on the final day of that month, police were summoned around to number 3 Hallbottom Street, a terraced house on a part rural lane, part mix of council housing and stone cottage houses. Following a shocking discovery that had been made by a work colleague of one of the occupants of the house, a 30-year-old part-time taxi driver named Joe Gallagher, or No-Nose Joe, as he was commonly known around the Hyde area after an operation he'd had on his sinuses, and who lived there with his girlfriend, Frida Hunter. By that Wednesday, the 28th of February 1979, a fellow taxi driver and friend of Joe's, Colin Scott, was concerned that he hadn't heard from him or been able to reach him for several days. Their taxi firm boss, Alex Newman, had telephoned Joe's home several times on the weekdays preceding to inquire as to his cabin availability, but had received no reply each time that he tried. Colin himself had also called around to number three on two occasions since the previous Saturday evening, but each time receiving no reply to his repeated knocking on the front door. Now by all accounts it wasn't uncommon to find it difficult to get in touch with Joe, but by the time three days had passed with no response, by the Wednesday, Colin's concern was grave enough that he decided to return to Hallbottom Street and this time make his way around the back of the house to force his way into the property. His concern was heightened as when doing this, he found the rear kitchen window of the house smashed and ajar, and upon entering through it himself, began to call for Joe and Frieda. There was no response from his repeated shouts for the couple, however, and making his way through the kitchen and into the lounge, Colin noticed the property was in some state of disarray. And there was also an unmistakable smell emanating from the upstairs of the property. His anxiety growing, Colin made his way upstairs, where he made a horrific discovery. Joe and Frieda were found in their blood-spattered upstairs front bedroom. Lying together in the heavily blood-soaked bed, the body of Joe lay slumped across Frieda, almost as if he'd tried in vain to protect her from the ensuing onslaught, for each of them had received what was estimated at the later post-mortem to be at least 14 savage blows each to the head and face with a hard, blunt weapon, a murder weapon thought most likely to have been a large and heavy hammer. The couple had been battered to death in an attack that was so severe, described by the senior detective leading the murder hunt, Detective Superintendent Tom Butcher, as, I quote, among the worst injuries that I've seen since joining the force, that each of their heads had been effectively destroyed, possibly up to three days before their bodies were found. Fourteen blows each. You can't even imagine the horror of that scene, can you? Joe Gallagher and his girlfriend of two years, 20-year-old barmaid Frieda Hunter, had lived together in the semi-detached council property of Number 3 since the spring of 1978, and were described by those who knew them as being a devoted couple, both very outgoing, and who were involved in the popular biker community that was predominant at that period of the 1970s. Joe was originally from the Withenshaw area of Manchester, and was described as during his schooling years, 
beginning at St John Fisher Primary School in Withenshaw and continuing at St Bede's in Wally Range, as being an academically outstanding student, doing well enough in his studies to have a promising scientific career ahead of him, and indeed, working for a period after leaving school as a laboratory technician at Manchester Grammar School. But perhaps there was some essence of the nomad in Joe, for he left this promising scientific career, and in the early 1970s decided to enlist in the army, leaving Manchester and spending three years away as a serving soldier. Nothing is documented as to the status of Joe's army career, what regiment he served with or where, his conduct while serving, or whether it was a remarkable career or not, but when he left the army after serving a reported three years, he adapted a lifestyle that was a world away from the regimented routine of army life, that of a traveller or the hippie lifestyle as it was classed back then. Travelling extensively around the country, he lived for a period of time in a commune with other like-minded souls near Glastonbury, where else of course, before moving further north to the Birmingham area where Joe met and married a woman who bore him a son. But the marriage didn't last and the couple split soon after, with it being unclear as to whether Joe was divorced or was still married at the time of his death. Following the couple's split in 1976, Joe found himself embroiled in the biker culture and heavy rock scene that was prevalent in late 1970s Britain and decided to head back up home to Manchester, where he lived for a while in the Victoria Road area of Dukinfield. He got himself a Triumph Tiger motorcycle and found himself a job working as a roadie for a rock band, spending his time entrenched in the sounds and culture generated by artists such as Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix and Pink Floyd. By this time also, Joe began to increasingly use cannabis, which was commonplace in the biker culture of the 1970s. It was also in 1976 that Frida Hunter, an outdoor nature-loving girl who was 10 years Joe's junior, had moved down to the Hyde area from her native Edinburgh to study creative arts at the local Manchester Polytechnic College. Upon starting it, she hadn't enjoyed the course and had decided to drop out, but as she'd made a lot of friends there, loved the biker culture and the Manchester music scene, because who wouldn't, and so much fabulous stuff was still to come too, like Joy Division and the whole Hacienda scene, Frieda had decided to remain in the Manchester area. Frieda and Joe then met and began a relationship in 1977, and eventually, by the following year, the couple had moved in together to number 3 Hallbottom Street. Now money was tight for a while once they had, as it was only Joe bringing a wage in from his part-time taxiing. But by mid-February 1979, Frieda had begun a job working as bar staff at the Queen's Hotel on Hyde's Clarendon Place. As she worked a mixed rotor of several lunch times and evenings, whenever Frieda was working a late shift, the routine that she and Joe had established was that he would come and collect her from work after closing time and would drive her the mile back home to Hallbottom Street. Saturday the 24th of February 1979 was one such evening, and after Frieda had just worked a busy shift, Joe had collected her from work just after closing time, having a quick after-hours pint whilst Frieda was helping straighten up, and that evening, after saying their goodbyes to the landlord and other bar staff, the couple had both gone home to Hallbottom Street, Joe having finished driving himself for the evening. That was the last time that anybody, apart from their killer, saw them alive. 
A murder inquiry was immediately launched and the standard investigative actions got underway, but almost immediately, police realised they were up against brick walls every way they turned. The extensive house-to-house inquiries in Hallbottom Street and its immediate surrounding areas of Sunningdale Close, Birkdale Close and Hickenfield Road established that no sounds of a struggle or screams coming from the house had been heard at any time between the Saturday evening and the Wednesday. No suspicious activity had been noticed by any of the couple's neighbours or residents of these areas throughout this period either, no one seen loitering around or fleeing the scene, and there were no obvious or immediate suspects that required police ruling them out. Investigating officers appealed across the wider area for any witnesses who may have noticed somebody that was perhaps heavily bloodstained, which due to the ferocity of the attack, the killer or killers would surely have been. But no one came forward to report seeing anyone in such a state. No workable forensic evidence from an unidentified party was found at the scene of the murder either, and although a mass search for a discarded murder weapon was also undertaken, with specialist search teams doing the whole bloody Tommy Lee Jones bit, searching waterways, drains, bins and rubbish tips in the area, it was to no avail. No murder weapon was, or has, ever subsequently been found. Any clearly defined motive for the savage killing was also elusive. Neither Joe nor Frieda was found to have had any recent or serious arguments or even disagreements with anybody, and neither was found to have anybody who bore them an already established long-standing grudge. They were described by all who knew them as being totally devoted to one another, and no evidence was found that suggested that either of them had been involved in an affair. Detectives reasoned at first that the couple had been murdered during the course of a burglary that had gone horrendously wrong, and supporting this theory was the fact that an empty wage packet of Joe's was found on the floor of the couple's bedroom, and Frieda's purse was also found to be empty. But nothing else of value was found to be missing from the house, and a simple robbery would not explain the reason for murder and the horrific level of violence used. A cold case officer from Greater Manchester Police, Detective Sergeant Julie Adams, told the Manchester Evening News in 2016, Yes, there was an empty wage packet, an empty purse, but it was clear the person had gone upstairs, killed them, come back out and gone. From the ferocity of the attack, this was personal, facial and all head, that's where the injuries were inflicted. It was this ferocity, this complete orgy of violence that led detectives to believe that the motive for the couple's horrific deaths was very much a personal one, and that answers may perhaps be found in the lifestyle that the couple led and the circles that they moved in, predominantly the biker community they were a part of, which police felt that the key to solving Joe and Frieda's murders lay within. It was established that Joe and Frieda had many friends who were members of the Dragon's Northwest chapter of the Hells Angels. Now many of these were involved in criminal activity and drug use, and there were more than a few unsavoury characters, shall we say, within this society. But looking into the biker community was to prove a mammoth task. Joe and Frieda had so many friends and acquaintances that shared their passion for biking and rock music, that during the course of the inquiry, Detectives were to carry out nearly 2,000 interviews spanning the length of Britain, ranging from as far south as Dorset to as far north as Edinburgh. 
Many of these interviews were with people who would during the course of them put detectives onto other potential witnesses, but by naming someone that they only knew by a nickname such as Warlord or Big Angus and who couldn't be traced further than that. No definitive motive or suspect emerged from these inquiries, but what did become apparent throughout the course of the interviews, however, was that, like many of their fellow members of the biker community in the 1970s, Joe and Frieda were both regular cannabis users, and it was said more than once during interviews that Joe himself was a known cannabis dealer. Joe's family, his mother Eileen and his sister Margaret, were to later claim that they knew he used cannabis, but that his use of it was simply to ease the chronic pain that he suffered following a series of operations he'd undergone upon a facial nasal disfigurement that he'd had since birth, hence the nickname that had cruelly been bestowed upon him of No-Nose Joe. Now it's never been established definitively whether Joe actually dealt in quantities of cannabis himself or was just a very enthusiastic user of top quality children in need, but it posed the question, was the murder drug related? It was certainly a work in theory, but it didn't explain the level of violence used, or why Frieda was killed also. In fact, the press jumped strongly on the drug-related angle, and this led to Joe's family left feeling that, he, that because he was a cannabis user, the press chose to highlight this part of his character, rather than focus overall upon the kind of man that he was. They believed that this led to a lack of public sympathy due to how drug use was viewed as being unsavoury and was frowned upon at the time, and possibly even made potential important witnesses not come forward or want to get involved. Joe's sister, Margaret Lenane, speaking in 2016 to the Manchester Evening News, described how Joe really was and how their whole family suffered following the murder, saying, Joe was my big brother. I absolutely adored him. He left home when I was three and we didn't get to see him that often, but he would just breeze in like a whirlwind arriving on his motorbike. I've got memories of when I was a little girl when he babysat for my mum. He came out of church and I was sat on the oil tank of the bike at the head of 40 Hell's Angels going up the street. He was very loving, he was intelligent. Yes, he wore a leather jacket, but he didn't have Satan and all the rest of it on the back. He would just appear, he was almost like a rock star to me. I just adored him. He was exciting and he was clever. I got on really well with Frida too. She was vibrant but in a quiet way. She was lovely to chat to and again was clever. She could quote Shakespeare. She loved the outdoors and loved nature. She was beautiful and I loved her. She made Joe happy. He was more settled than with Frida and in a better place in his head. The press were extremely unkind to us. They needed a story and said he smoked cannabis. It was something that they came back to. That was just a tiny little part of Joe. People my mother had known for years ignored her in the street and parents at my school demanded that I was expelled because they reckoned my brother was a drug addict. It got really nasty. The family fell apart for a while. All the people that you thought were your friends were slagging you off behind your back. You felt like putting a big note on the door saying, we are the victims. Now I can well believe that from the press as well, but that's a whole debate that we could be here all night having, isn't it? Now in the same interview, Margaret gives an account that may support the theory that Joe had upset someone, or there was bad blood between him and another, following a visit that he'd made to his mother Eileen just a week before the murders were discovered. She claimed, 
I got home from school and she was very quiet. I remember her saying, Joe's been, I think there's something wrong. After he'd been killed, she said to one of the detectives that she was sure he'd been threatened. She was convinced he wanted to tell her something, but couldn't. But ultimately, this line of inquiry, like all others that were examined during the investigation, drew a blank. The theory that the murders were drug-related ones remained exactly that, just a working theory. Throughout the course of the inquiry, several suspects were reportedly interviewed and eliminated, but no one was ever charged in connection with the brutal double murder, and by the following year, it had been marked active with regular reviews. Over the ensuing years, the cold case has been reviewed periodically, as and when time to and funding is available for it to be, and the Greater Manchester Police Cold Case Unit is keen to stress that the murder file does still remain open today. They remain optimistic that there is still someone out there who has vital information that could help solve the murders of Frieda Hunter and Joe Gallagher, and that due to passage of time since the murders, and the public today having much more open-mindedness about cannabis use and non-conventional lifestyle choices, this person or persons may now feel able to come forward and pass police that crucial information. So it's the thinking out loud bit then. Now this is a case that there's relatively little information available for research purposes, and what there is, I've just presented here as best I could. And whilst researching it, what is available I found poses as many questions as it does possible theories. A lot of this has to be surmising as well, based on the gaps in information that we have. And I have to remind also, as I said at the start, this is my own thinking out loud concerning the crime. I don't in any way profess it to be right, but nor am I setting out to deliberately spout a shamble of bollocks either. So firstly, what is the likely motive here? A jealous lover? Now it can't be wholly discounted that the motive for the murders was jealousy, perhaps committed by a spurned lover or a jealous suitor of one or the other. With the absence of any witnesses having seen anyone entering or fleeing the scene, there are no descriptions available, and it's even impossible to determine whether the killer was male or female, though to overpower a couple would normally suggest a strong male, unless they were attacked whilst asleep. The level of overkill in the murders, 28 blows from a bloody hammer, would suggest that it was a crime of passion, a moment of madness, but I believe that the 1979 inquiry would have been thorough enough to have established if there was any evidence of either Joe or Frieda involved in an affair, which it didn't, and I believe that if that were the case, then reclamation for an affair against either party by a jealous other half would have been a much more public display, shall we say. Plus, at least someone would likely have known about it, and word would have gotten back to detectives, so I would say this was unlikely as a motive. Robbery then. Yes, it could be that a burglar or burglars targeted a house to break into at random. It would explain the forced and smashed back kitchen window after all. But if it were a random burglary, then why choose a mid-terraced house instead of one that backed onto fields to make it easier for a burglar to access and egress? Number 3 Hallbottom Street, or 3A as it's known today, has a rear garden that backs onto its neighbouring property in Hickenfield Road behind, whereas other properties nearby back onto plain fields, which of course offer the burglar cover of darkness, and because also they're a cowardly lot burglars aren't they? 
On this fact then, I don't believe two such brutal murders are the work of a simple random burglar either, who even if disturbed, would surely have fled first. I mean, how many burglars set out to burgle, and then halfway through, go postal and decide to attack someone so brutally as to commit double murder? No, I do believe it was forced entry to the property, the kitchen window wouldn't have been staged, but not for the purposes of theft, and I believe that Joe and Frieda were attacked as they lay in bed. There were no reported screams or sounds of a struggle, which would likely have been reported should someone have burst into their home when both were still up, and there was no reported signs of any disturbance in any of the other rooms of the house bar the broken kitchen window, and of course, the front bedroom. It was reported by the person who found the bodies, Colin Scott, that the downstairs was in, I quote, disarray, but that's a far cry from there being blood everywhere, which it would have been had they been attacked downstairs. Perhaps Joe and Frieda weren't the type who kept a show home, and if they had been attacked downstairs, why would a killer or killers then take the time and effort to move both of the heavily bloodstained bodies upstairs? No, I believe Joe and Frieda were attacked where they were found, quite possibly being in a drug-induced haze beforehand, which may have meant that they were even more sound asleep than usual, and therefore less likely to hear someone breaking in. But we come back to what then is the motive, and who was the actual target here, Joe, Frieda, or both? It's impossible to establish who had been struck first, but I believe that had the target been Frieda, the possible reason for it would have been more apparent, and would have come to light during the investigation, and that brings us back to the spurned lover or jealous suitor, I would have thought. It would also likely have taken place elsewhere, and a different method of murder been used, strangulation perhaps, or the use of a knife, but that's a much more personal way. I believe myself that it was a drug-related murder. Now whilst it cannot be established definitively that Joe was a cannabis dealer, he was certainly a heavy user, be it for recreational use, medicinal purposes, whatever. Had he then run up sizable debts due to this use, and someone wanted repaying? Had he then fobbed them off for as long as he could, not having the money to repay them, until one Saturday, a night where the would-be killer or killers may have been out, fueled by drink, they decided to collect what was owed? Or, if he was a dealer, then had Joe ripped off the wrong person, perhaps supplied them bad or fake gear, or had perhaps welched on a deal? Or was someone in the belief that he had a massive stash of drugs or money at home, and went to take it, then when nothing was found except what was in the wage packet and purse, killed both in a furious rage at such an empty hall, perhaps striking Frieda first in coercion to get Joe to reveal where his stash or his money was. For any of these theories to have any substance, this then has to be someone known to the couple and therefore someone who was likely spoken to in the initial inquiry. Perhaps someone who'd followed them home after Joe had picked Frieda up from the Queen's Hotel and waited for the opportunity to break in and attack. Or someone who already knew their established regular routine and knew that they would be home at the time. And someone who was undoubtedly known to police already for a crime of this magnitude, is no first offence, is it? And who had planned to kill that evening, for if this had been an argument that had seriously escalated, then it would surely have been heard by neighbours, 
or someone would have been seen entering or fleeing the scene, panicking at events that had gotten out of control and flight kicking in, or surely a murder weapon would have been found, disposed of near to the scene in a panic. But if it was a planned killing, then why the level of overkill? Hatred? To ensure there was no possible witnesses? Or was it just sheer bloodlust? I know that when we cover unsolved cases here on the show, it does frustrate some of you guys, because we all like a nice neat conclusion after all. And this one, all this must remain mere speculation based on the evidence available. A lot of which evidence is hearsay and unsubstantiated, and also with several frustrating gaps and unestablished points that if we had, may provide an insight into the psyche of the killer or killers. For example, as we've said, it raises points such as, how many perpetrators are we talking about here? Did the killer or killers use a car? Who was struck first in the attack? Was it Joe or Frieda? Did the killer or killers bring the murder weapon with them? Was it something that was to hand at the scene that they used as a weapon and then removed with them? How much money had been taken and why was nothing else missing? By which method did the killer leave the property? Why was nothing heard in a close-knit, heavily residential street? Questions, questions, eh? Now frustratingly, of course, as I just said a moment ago, all theory that I've come out with here must remain pure speculation. There's no clearly established or even any physical description of any possible suspects. There are no witnesses to give any evidence or descriptions. There is no report of any forensic evidence being left behind by the killer, no identified or discovered murder weapon, and there is even no definitive motive or target for that matter. It's also a very real possibility that the killer or killers of Joe and Frieda are themselves today in prison for another crime, in a hospital or nursing home, perhaps are even dead themselves. It is very likely that the answer did lie within the circles that the couple moved in, but detectives working on the inquiry could never find the answer in these circles, and the case turned to the coldest ashes. However, even despite the passage of time, and at some 42 plus years now, it is possible that today there does still remain someone who will themselves be advanced in years now, but who still knows or suspects who is responsible for the murders, but have been prevented from coming forward for all these years, perhaps due to fear of reprisal, or misguided loyalty even. And sadly, it seems that barring a deathbed confession, or a conscience finally getting the better of someone, then Joe and Frieda's killer will remain unidentified. And that's not right, is it? Frieda's family have never publicly spoken about the crimes, at least not from what I was able to establish through researching. But her parents or siblings, should they still be living today, deserve some answers, as do Joe's family. His sister, Margaret Lenane, told the Manchester Evening News in 2016, No one is nearer the truth, that's the problem. You've got no closure. You can kind of get that with Joe's lifestyle and the friends he had. Some of the people he thought were friends might not have been. Someone really didn't like him and took it out on him. But why Frieda? That is the bit that devastates my mother. It's bad enough that she lost a son, but that poor girl hadn't done anything. Surely someone out there in that community would have had the decency to say, you shouldn't have done that. But there is no conscience there, is there? They can't be. They might have a grudge against Joe for whatever reason, but Frieda, she was just lovely. 
Aside from their families, Joe and Frieda themselves deserve justice to be served also, and they should never be discounted or forgotten, nor their importance diminished due to any lifestyle choices that they may have led or been involved in, a fact best summed up by the following quote from the coroner, Peter Revington, speaking at the inquest in 1979. The couple's way of life may not have appealed altogether to those with more conventional backgrounds, but they were perfectly harmless and innocent people who worked honestly for a living and had a stable relationship. Indeed, eh? Now doing the full Nick Ross bit here, anyone having any possible information concerning the case can contact Greater Manchester Police's Cold Case Unit on 0161 856 5961 or by contacting Crime Stoppers anonymously if wished, on 0800 555 111. Both numbers will be supplied in the episode show notes also. Now we shall continue with our episode following a short word from the episode's sponsors. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. If there's something preventing you from achieving your goals or interfering with your happiness, then BetterHelp can help you. Now we're currently undergoing a period that's been a particularly trying one for everybody, and though we may be coming through it, it's still difficult for a lot of us who may have all sorts going on, dealing with being separated from our loved ones and friends, dealing with the whole lockdown situation, it can be tough and it can be proper trying. Now just to clarify, better help isn't self-help, what it does is assesses whatever issues you're facing and then calling on the broad range of expertise it has available selects a licensed professional therapist that best suits your needs, matching you up for professional counselling. There are specialists in a vast range of issues available, from depression right through to sleeping troubles, some of which you may not have locally available to you, and in less than 24 hours, you can start communicating in a private and confidential online environment with a personal counsellor who you can message anytime you wish, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions with, and from whom you'll get thoughtful and timely responses and feedback. It's a service available worldwide and at a much more affordable rate than traditional offline counselling that even offers financial aid available to help for the use of the service should you need it. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com forward slash TCE and join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com forward slash TCE. So, a horrific, sad and frustrating one to begin with there, Ray, and certainly a long-forgotten one, but there was the best part of bugger all to research concerning the case. And it gets little better with our second account but which I have done my best with, folks, because we do like a challenge here after all. For our second account, we skip forward 23 years to 2002 and are off 10 miles north of Hyde to the greater Manchester town of Oldham, a town famous for being where Winston Churchill began his political career and that can claim no end of notable people hailing from there, such as the world's first IVF-conceived baby, Louise Brown, the Silver Fox himself, Pip Schofield, the band The Inspiral Carpets, and former England footballer David Platt, to name just a few. Now, honorary mention here on the show also has to go to the late Oldham-born actress Anne Kirkbride, who will be more familiar to UK listeners as Corrie legend Deirdre Barlow, best known as 
and I'm sure you've been waiting for him, haven't you? Top shagger Ken Barlow's most resilient sex opponent, and she of the biggest glasses on earth. You could see to Saturn with them, I'm sure. Mind you, if you mess with the Barlow, your eyes are going to pop out, I suppose, aren't they? The Werneth district of the town is a blend of low-level housing, commercial premises and industrial units, situated close to Oldham Spindle Shopping Centre and less than two miles from the Royal Oldham Hospital. And standing predominant amongst the skyline of the area are a number of blocks of high-rise flats. Two of these, Crossbank and Somervale House, are situated near to the town's busy Manchester Street roundabout on Vale Road, just off the main A62. And it's a seventh floor flat in one of these, the Somervale House block, that the focus of our second account takes place. On Sunday the 8th of December 2002, 26-year-old coronary care nurse Debbie Remorozzo was due to work a day shift at the Royal Oldham Hospital from 7am to 3pm, having worked the first shift of her rostered block the previous day, but she never turned up for work. It was not like the conscientious Debbie to have slept late or to not have called in if she was ill, so her concerned colleagues called her mobile several times, but to no avail. Finally, after she didn't arrive at all and several attempts throughout the shift to contact her had failed, Concerned that Debbie was seriously ill or had had an accident, one of her worried colleagues, nurse Estralita Villacamia, went around to Debbie's seventh floor flat in Somervale House to investigate. At 5.40pm, Estralita arrived at the block and was allowed access, but found the door to Debbie's flat locked and no response coming from her repeated knocking. By now alarmed, spare key was obtained and Estralita entered the flat. What she was to find there shocked and frightened her to the point where she, and many of the other Filipino nurses who worked at the Royal Oldham Hospital, actually considered leaving in fear that a brutal killer was in the midst of the closely knit Filipino community they belonged to and that any one of them could be targeted next. Estralita later said, It was dark in her flat when we went in. We found her lying on the floor. There was lots of blood on her clothes. I felt for a pulse, but there was none. I ran out and called an ambulance. Debbie had been found in the living room. Fully clothed, her body was laid out on the floor of her lounge in what was later described as being, I quote, a crucifix shape. Heavy blood staining covered her clothing, whilst a white tablecloth covered her face and upper shoulders, obscuring them from view. Estralita immediately checked for a pulse to see if her friend was still alive, but when she found there was none, contacted police. Police arrived on the scene rapidly, and quickly established that there were no signs of forced entry to the flat. There were no signs of anything being taken from the property or any ransacking either, and as she was found fully clothed, Debbie was not thought to have been raped or sexually interfered with, a theory which was confirmed at the subsequent post-mortem. The post-mortem also established that it was likely that Debbie had died between 4pm and 7pm the previous evening, and that her death had been due to shock and massive blood loss from her wounds, or she'd been repeatedly stabbed in the neck, chest and back in what was described as a frenzied attack, with several of the wounds penetrating her heart and her lungs. Two blood-stained kitchen knives, thought to have been the murder weapons, 
were found in the flat. As the ensuing murder investigation began then, inquiries got underway with the other occupants of Somerville House, but these revealed nothing. No one reported hearing any sounds of a disturbance or any screams that Saturday, and no bloodstained killer was witnessed fleeing the building or was caught on any CCTV, although traces of Debbie's blood were found in the stairwell of Somerville House. However, it wasn't reported in what quantity this was, or where in relation to her flat it was either. Was it above or below? The lack of any signs of forced entry to the flat suggested that Debbie had willingly let her killer inside, suggesting that her killer was someone that she knew. Her family and friends confirmed that Debbie was extremely security conscious and would never have willingly allowed a stranger into her home. Without a clear motive for the murder then, the team of 30 detectives who were assigned to the case were forced to look closely at Debbie's life and movements, hoping perhaps something would jump out and provide a clue as to why she was killed. Debbie Remoroso came from a large family in the tiny farming and fishing village of Kinalansan in the Philippines, and two years before her death, when Debbie was 24 years old, she'd come to live and work in the UK, finding employment as a coronary care nurse at the Royal Oldham Hospital. It was a job that she loved doing and worked hard at, and as a result, Debbie was well-liked and highly regarded by her colleagues. Debbie lived alone in a flat on the seventh floor of the Somerville House block of flats, about a mile and a half from the hospital where she worked, and although she had many friends, being part of a sizable Filipino community in Oldham, Debbie wasn't much of a socialiser. Aside from worship, as she was a staunch Catholic and a regular churchgoer, her life really seemed to revolve around a nursing job, with her often opting to work overtime and saving as much money as she possibly could to send home to the point where she was described as austere in how she lived. The detective leading the inquiry, Detective Superintendent Steve Haywood, told the Manchester Evening News in 2002, What is startling is the simplicity of Debbie's life. She would get up, go to work and do a 12 to 14 hour shift, come home, make a meal and go to sleep. Her sole purpose was to generate cash for her family back in the Philippines. Although she was an attractive woman and reportedly had a number of male admirers, Debbie was not known to be seriously or casually dating anyone. She would mention if asked that she had had a boyfriend living in Birmingham, a Filipino male who worked as a hospital porter, but the impression that people gleaned from it was that she held what many would consider to be old-fashioned views about relationships, and certainly wouldn't mess about with different men at the same time. On the last day of her life, Saturday 7th of December 2002. Debbie had worked a day shift at the hospital as was part of her 8 hour shift rotation pattern. She turned up for work promptly at 7am and had been due to finish at 3pm but had stayed longer to write up her notes from the shift which her colleagues described as being normal practice for Debbie on what was a normal uneventful shift. Uneventful apart from one slight occurrence. Not long before she'd finished for the day, Debbie took a telephone call at work which colleagues were later to tell police had left Debbie seemingly, a quote, distressed, although she didn't share any details of the call with her colleagues. It's never been revealed as to the identity of this caller or even if it was established this. 
She then completed her shift paperwork and left the Royal Oldham Hospital. Now it was customary for Debbie to walk the relatively short distance of just over a mile from work to home and colleagues didn't report her as saying that she had any plans to go anywhere other than straight home after finishing her shift that day. She was caught on the hospital CCTV at 3.27pm leaving the grounds wearing a nurse's uniform, a dark blue NHS issue jacket and a distinctive orange bobble hat and heading off in the direction of Somerville House. She was then spotted on the Somerville House CCTV arriving home sometime between 3.45pm and 3.55pm. The, the exact time was unestablished. Dressed the same as the hospital CCTV had depicted her, the figure was clearly identified as Debbie, where she was seen using a key to gain access to the building. Now the Somerville House complex was at the time protected by a six-foot steel fence surrounding the grounds and was manned 24-7 by a security guard slash concierge. Inside, a mixture of user-operated electronic mag locks and key fob access-controlled access and egress on not just the external doors to the building, but also to the internal doors that led off to the corridors on each floor, which must have appealed greatly to the security-conscious Debbie to live in such an environment. The CCTV that showed Debbie entering the building was the last time she was seen alive by anyone, except for her killer. And as for a motive for murder jumping out from this in-depth look at her life, nothing did. No one was discovered with any sort of grudge against Debbie, or who wanted her harmed in any way. There were no secret boyfriends or illicit love affairs discovered. Debbie wasn't involved in anything illegal or immoral. From everywhere they looked, police were just left with a picture of a quiet, well-liked and hard-working, devout Catholic whose life revolved around her work and her family. Aside from speaking to Debbie's friends and colleagues at the Royal Oldham Hospital, the congregation at the church in Oldham that Debbie attended, St. Patrick's, and members of the Oldham Filipino community in general, detectives even travelled to Debbie's home village of Kinalansan in the Philippines to speak to members of her family and people who knew her there to see if anyone there had any information that could possibly help, perhaps even able to establish a possible motive that could be found originating from home. But despite a £10,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of Debbie's killer, the inquiries proved fruitless and the investigation soon ground to a halt. A few weeks after her murder, Debbie's body was flown home to be buried by her devastated family, who then tried to begin the process of grieving for their beloved sister and daughter. On the first anniversary of her death, Debbie was remembered by her friends and ex-colleagues at a special mass held at Oldham's St. Patrick's Church, where she'd been a member of the congregation, and at which they had time to reflect on the little progress that had been made to bring her killer to justice. Convinced that the key to Debbie's murder lay within the closely-knit Filipino community, several appeals had been made, both in the Oldham one, and even throughout other Filipino communities nationwide, in both English and the Filipino language Tagalog. These had resulted in the arrest of a 26-year-old man and a 31-year-old woman in connection with Debbie's murder on April 3rd, 2003, although both had been interviewed, bailed for a month, and were later released without charge. But by the following year, scientists had managed to obtain a DNA profile from evidence that was in storage from the crime scene, 
that was strong enough that detectives believed it could identify or eliminate Debbie's killer. Although it has never been revealed exactly the item that this sample was obtained from, nor the form that it took, was it blood spots or saliva, etc. With this, detectives working on the case became so convinced that they identified Debbie's killer that they had gone as far as to prepare a file of evidence for submission to the Crown Prosecution Service. But after reading the file, senior CPS lawyers ultimately decided that on the strength of the evidence, obtaining a successful murder conviction in the case was an unrealistic prospect and subsequently refused to authorise a murder charge being made. So with this decision, plus the lack of any further progress being made, Debbie's murder was classed as a cold case and marked inactive with regular reviews. It has been reappealed several times over the ensuing years, but remains officially unsolved to this day. And I stress officially, because although there's relatively little information available to research about the case, apart from what I've recounted here of course, a common thread in what there is, is that Debbie's murder is only officially unsolved. To prepare a file of evidence for submitting to the CPS means that investigators were suitably convinced that they knew the identity of Debbie's killer and had evidence that could at least place them at the scene of the crime. A former detective who worked on the case said, I quote, I'm 100% sure I know who's done it, and people out there will know who's done it too. But with no charge being authorised, Debbie's murder officially today remains classed as a cold case. For legality, there are no details available about any suspects or the specific evidence that is held with regards to suggesting the identity of Debbie's killer. Examining it, we are left to merely surmise the events, the thinking out loud bit, which is hindered by the lack of detail available concerning the crime. And as with Joe and Frieda's case, what is available tends to raise more questions and possibilities than provide definitive answers. It's a troubling one this is, that one that raised all sorts of points and possibilities that I wrote down while I was researching, so we shall do what we can with the thinking out loud bit. And once again, I'm not bloody murder she wrote or anything, these are my own thoughts and hypotheses concerning the crime, so don't take this as gospel. Examining what is known then, it's almost certain Debbie knew a killer or killers. This isn't the work of an intruder breaking in as there are no signs of forced entry and therefore the murder being the work of a robbery that went wrong. Also, unless you're Spider-Man, then a burglar opportunist attacker would seriously not choose the seventh floor of a relatively secure block to target for a random break-in. Nor is this likely a murder that has sex as a predominant motive. This would show at least some evidence of attempted rape or Debbie's clothing being disturbed, and none of this was reported. But this isn't to say that sex didn't have something to do with it, and I'll explain what I mean by that shortly. Much is made of the telephone call that Debbie received following the end of her shift the previous day that had reportedly distressed her, and whilst it can't be ruled out that it is connected to a death, the possibility to identify the source of the call would be available, that you hope would have been done during the initial investigation. A check with mobile phone service providers if it was received through a mobile, or an itemised breakdown of calls received at the telephone extension at the hospital ward that she took the call on for the time period for, say, an hour encompassing Debbie's shift ending and her writing up the notes the time she received this call. It's never been reported if the number or caller was identified, 
and there's also the possibility that the distress Debbie was left in following this call had actually been misconstrued or misperceived by other staff also. Because we just don't know, it's merely and frustratingly left for pure speculation. Police have always believed that someone went to Debbie's flat that Saturday with the intention of argument or for a confrontation with her, and this does seem most likely. Debbie wouldn't have allowed a stranger into her home, no one suspicious was reported entering or leaving the building that Saturday, and no screams or sounds of a struggle were reported. Plus add to that that the building is a relatively secure one, so gaining access isn't or shouldn't be that easy. It had six foot high fencing, on-site security, internal and external CCTV coverage, and electronic access. So anyone suspicious being there should have been remembered, depending of course on the stringent efficiency and failsafe of any security systems or procedures, where they all functional and where they all adhered to, that kind of thing. The hours of CCTV from the entry to the block covering the period from Debbie arriving home between 3.45pm and 3.55pm that Saturday afternoon to her body being discovered the following day will also have been scrutinised in the original investigation. Well, you'd hope so anyway. And everybody seen on it over this period identified and spoken to over the course of the investigation. No one unidentified was reported as being seen over this time period and leaving a 7th floor flat, you would have to pass by an internal CCTV camera at some point, so with this in mind, not only does it suggest someone Debbie knew, but someone who possibly did not have to leave, because he or she lived or worked in the same block. I believe that the killer was either a neighbour of Debbie's, someone who worked in the same block or complex, or a visitor she admitted access to. A killer living or working in Somerville House is supported by the fact that traces of Debbie's blood was found in the stairwell of the block, although where exactly in relation to her 7th floor flat, higher or lower, is not reported, but no bloodstained killer was seen leaving the block at any time over the period in question, which you think that they would do in a hurry. So, did the killer simply go home and clean themselves up, perhaps only needing to go as far as a couple of floors up or down? Of course, it's entirely possible that Debbie's killer was merely a visitor, and so cleaned themselves up as best as they could in her flat, before composing themselves enough to leave. But any visitor she admitted would be on the same CCTV that captured her arriving home that Saturday afternoon, and they would also be seen leaving. And then we come back to the motive for the murder, so we can rule out robbery, as we've said before, and a predominant sex crime would show at least some evidence of attempted rape, surely. Debbie wasn't found to be involved in any illegal activity, nor involved in an affair, and both would go against what's known of her character anyway. So what then was the likely motive for Debbie's murder? I believe that the likely motive was a deeply personal one, the result of someone having a serious grudge against her. Police have always been convinced that a killer went there that day to confront Debbie, but why? It's not likely to have been over money, Debbie was frugal and didn't live beyond her means, would not have had large amounts of cash in her flat as it all went back to her family anyway, and was not reported as having been in the habit of borrowing money to or from people. Debbie's life was looked at in enough depth to know that she was not involved in anything unlawful or illicit either, so this too is an unlikely reason for the source of any argument. So an argument that got out of hand, but about what? 
I think the most likely reason for anybody to confront Debbie would have been jealousy, or perhaps as a spurned lover. And this comes back to what I said earlier about it not being a sex crime, but having a motive steeped in sex. Was someone pestering Debbie for sex? Debbie was an attractive woman and reportedly had several men interested in her after all. We also know that she kept them at arm's length as she held almost old-fashioned views about sex before marriage. So had she caught the eye of someone who then made advances towards her, came to confront her about being rejected, then turning nasty when she refused them again? Was this an escalation of an argument and a knife was grabbed during a struggle? Or was Debbie attacked when she was unawares and incapacitated with a stab wound before being repeatedly stabbed again? Now the possibility also exists, and this is a very real one, that Debbie's killer was a woman. Perhaps someone viewed Debbie as a potential love rival, or the reason a relationship had failed or was unrequited, and she was stabbed to death in the heat of a moment in a crime of passion, perhaps in mid-argument. There are countless documented cases of love rivals committing the most horrendous of crimes in the heat of passion. A red mist just descends. So was Debbie's murder in the same vein? It was reported as being a frenzied attack rather than a clinical incapacitating one, which suggests that Debbie's murder may not have necessarily been premeditated and would seem to support this. Now the knives I had a bit of a ponder about. It's claimed that more than one knife was found with traces of blood on. They'd not been brought to the scene by her killer, they were Debbie's own knives taken from her kitchen. But where exactly these knives were found in relation to her body isn't reported, and it's the absence of details such as this that can have you off thinking all kinds of theory that could ultimately be misleading. They're unlikely to have been left on the floor near to her body because a killer would have at least attempted to wipe off any fingerprints or DNA from them and we're better to do that than in the kitchen sink. But why would a single killer use two knives? Well, there are a couple of possibilities that are considered. For example, did one of the knives break? Or two knives could also suggest the possibility that there was more than one killer responsible. Two people working in tandem, perhaps one restraining her initially, whilst the other stabbed her, then the other person having a go themselves. Now I think that unlikely, however, killers working in pairs is not overly common, watch this space, and I believe two people with grudge enough to murder Debbie so brutally would have come to attention during the course of the initial inquiry. And also, it should be said, without knowing how much blood is on each knife, it can't be said for certain that both were even used to stab Debbie. Blood may have simply transferred from one to another if it were placed back in a knife block, or back into a kitchen drawer, say. It is reported that Debbie was found in her lounge, therefore you can assume that the attack happened there, but this is where the lack of details available about the scene make any hypothesis difficult. For example, were there any signs of Debbie having made any tea or coffee for any visitors? Was there any heavy blood staining to the sofa or chairs, or traces of blood found anywhere else in the flat, in the bathroom or in the kitchen, for example? Did the attack happen solely in the lounge, or was there evidence of a scuffle in another room? Did Debbie's body show any signs of being beaten? It's details that we would be provided with the answers to questions such as these that would help paint a fuller picture of the events of the murder, which in turn would help narrow down the field of suspects and strengthen any ideas about the possible motive. Also, much is reported of Debbie's body being laid out in a crucifix shape and having her face covered, and I had a few thoughts about this one as well. 
The shape that she lay in could be the result of how she just naturally fell to the floor once stabbed, or a killer may have stabbed her repeatedly while she was on the floor and inadvertently moved her into that position whilst doing so. Or, of course, she may have been deliberately posed like that, but specific signature behaviour such as this, which I believe could be the result of mental illness or something, would have been identified in someone spoken to during the course of the investigation. The face was also covered with a tablecloth. It's not established if there was bloodstaining on both sides of this or not. And whilst it is believed that this was an act of remorse by the killer, this shouldn't be accepted as fact too quickly. It might have been done to try and stifle any screams, or to instill fear in Debbie, or even have been an attempt to smother her. It may even have been done just out of guilt, or just been used by the killer or killers to clean themselves up, then discarded, and just happened to fall across her face like that when thrown down. But without access to any crime scene photographs to ascertain the exactness of the position of this, and Debbie's body, these are points that could be misleading, and possibly even points that have been over-sensationalised. Frustratingly, there is just so much we don't know about the case we're left to simply surmise and hypothesise. Despite numerous appeals in the years since Debbie's death, her murder remains officially unsolved, and the now £50,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of her killer remains unclaimed. Police do have a DNA sample that they believe was from the killer, and DNA evidence is of course the bollocks, isn't it, eh? Yet for the CPS lawyers to refuse a charge based on it being unlikely that a conviction would be able to be obtained, this supports the theory that the profile will match someone who could readily explain away a reason for their DNA profile being in Debbie's flat, meaning that Debbie's killer was indeed known to her. So a killer will have been spoken to and identified, possibly even arrested beforehand, as we know two arrests were made some months after the murder on April the 3rd, 2003, but has so far managed to escape justice. The murder of Debbie Remoroso is at a standstill now, and investigators are left awaiting either new information coming forward, a confession from someone who has her death on their conscience, or more conclusive scientific evidence being obtained, which is an unlikely prospect after so long, and as a DNA profile already obtained wasn't classed as strong enough evidence, you have to wonder what other forensic evidence could possibly be obtained now that's better, if there is anything scientifically stronger, which I can't really think of. And that means that the pain goes on for Debbie's family, who've spent almost 20 years now mourning a loss and still live in hope that one day her killer will face justice for the crime. In 2014, Debbie's brother Dennis, speaking on behalf of the Remoroso family, including Debbie's rice farmer father Dioncio and her teacher mother Alicia, told the Manchester Evening News, we are still hoping though that with the help of scientific approach and new technologies now, justice for my sister will be served soon. It's still very hard for us with sad memories of what happened to my sister. 14 years has passed and we never heard again from the Manchester police and investigators. We've been hopeless and frustrated since then, not knowing where and how we can get results of the investigation and the reason why someone killed my sister. Our family would like to appeal for help once again from the Manchester Police Department that they may continue to exert more effort in solving the case of Debbie. Maybe the police and investigators will find new breakthrough with their investigation. 
please let the Manchester police know that we are pleading for their help in this case. Hopefully, answers will come to us one day. Yes, by all accounts, the Remoroso family had not heard from Greater Manchester Police for more than a decade by that time, which is extremely remiss, isn't it? I mean, at least explain the status of the investigation to them. Say to them, look, off the record, we know who's done it, we just can't get charges authorised. It might not be what they want to hear, but at least it's been up front with them, isn't it? And to not do that, I found that to be very poor. Now it is reported that Greater Manchester Police were back in touch with the family following the Manchester Evening News passing on Dennis's request however. So let's hope that they did pass on the status of the case to them and shame on them for having to be chided to do so as well. So two very sad and frustrating cases covered here then I'm sure you'll agree and ones that I believe should be so much more familiar than they actually are. For Joe and Frieda and Debbie don't deserve to be forgotten names, because each are people who've left massive holes in the lives of so many of their friends and loved ones for so many years now, taken from them in such horrific and brutal circumstances. What are your thoughts and theories on each of the cases that I've presented here today then? Now I've heard what I think here simply based on the evidence available. As I've said countless times throughout the episode, I don't profess it for a second to be exactly what has happened, perhaps I've even been glaringly wrong in some things, or there are points about each case that I may have missed or overlooked, which is where you guys come in, because I'd love to hear from you about it. Let me know if you think I'm right, or even if you think I'm spouting utter bollocks about stuff. Your feedback is welcomed, as always. If something strikes you that you think, oh, well, that's obvious, or you have a theory about one or both the cases that I haven't mentioned here, then please, by all means, feel free to share your own views on the discussion thread now up in the show's Facebook discussion group, or through any of the show's social media links. And I should reiterate that anyone with any information concerning the murders of Joe and Frieda or Debbie can call the Cold Case Unit of Greater Manchester Police on 0161 856 5961 or through Crime Stoppers on 0800 555 111 anonymously if you wish to pass this information along. With that it's wrap up time here now on the show and as the true crime production line never ends and I bet my bloody next month's wages that that will end up as a show title popping up soon I'm off here now and beginning working on the next offering from the enthusiast. One that might be as frustrating, but one that I do guarantee will have a conclusion to it, rounded off for all those that unsolved cases make Twitch. I'd like to remind everyone also that tickets for CrimeCon 2021 are still available, that's now taking place over the weekend of the 25th and 26th of September in the Leonardo Hotel in London St Paul's. Now what a weekend that promises to be, it's got all manner of distinguished guests and authors and broadcasters from the world of true crime, with several names and faces that you'll know, as well as Podcast Row, with equally a few familiar names, if not faces, taking part over the weekend. The likes of Caprice from the Unseen Podcast, Chantel from Lady Justice, Sinead from Men's Rear, Ben and Rosie from They Walk Among Us, Mike from Murder Mile, Bob and Ali from Twisted Britain, Adam from UK True Crime, Bethan and Mark from Seeing Red, The Skinwalker Guys, just a few of the familiar names will be taking part, alongside myself, because I shall be there for the entire weekend also. 
Now it promises to be a right blast and I can't wait to be taking part and I equally can't wait to catch up with loads of you folks to say hi to at the event, discuss cases with, put the world of true crime to rights, perhaps even have a beer with later on in the evening, who knows. What I do know is that the organisers of CrimeCon have very kindly offered myself for the show listeners so that if you come to book tickets for the event and you use the unique code ENTHUSIAST when you come to check out, you'll get them at 10% off the total cost. Now that's pretty fab that, isn't it, eh? Any purchases are also COVID protected. Now that doesn't mean they've had the jab or anything, but in the event of a flare-up again, and you might laugh, but bloody stranger things have happened this past year, haven't they? Then in the event of a COVID-related cancellation, full refunds will be available. Now a bit nearer to the event, I shall also be having a bit of a show giveaway involving CrimeCon as well, because I've got a pretty good prize to do so. So watch this space for a few more details. I thank you all very kindly for joining me here once again. And all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast. Wishing you folks all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, stay safe, thanks very much for joining me, and goodbye for now.